0: Isaiah chapter one, our text is verses 21 through 31. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together. With none to quench them. This is the Word of God. Thank you. Do you remember the film Casablanca with Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman? There's a, there's a great scene in that film when the customers at Rick's Cafe defy the Nazi bullies who were there by standing up spontaneously to sing the French national anthem. It's a very beautiful scene. They stick the Nazis, they poke them right in the eye. And uh, one, the most moving part of it to me is one brief moment when the camera finds a French woman who stands to sing with the others so passionately, so movingly. And what's so beautiful about her is that earlier in the film... She had degraded herself. She'd been hanging on the uh, arm of a Nazi soldier as his date. But in that crucial moment, when it counted, she redeemed herself. Redemption is powerful. To see a beautiful new human being emerge from the wreckage of a ruined life is moving. And the gospel is all about redemption. It's about personal newness for you and for me. But the difference between redemption in Casablanca and redemption in the Bible is that the stories in the Bible do not inspire us to redeem ourselves. They're not even meant to. The gospel is about redemption by God. What is redemption? Redemption is a subcategory inside the larger category, salvation. Because redemption explains how God saves us. How does He? By paying a personal price. In real life, there is no easy way out of sin. Ultimately, there is no self-redemption. We get ourselves into trouble we 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 make foolish choices we send our way right into bondage if we try to cover it up if we try to make excuses we just dig ourselves in deeper every day we create the conditions in which we literally actually deserve the judgment of god and for his part what does god do he offers to, us to, he offers to get us out of our trouble at His expense. He offers to absorb within Himself the consequences we have set into motion. He pays the price so that we don't have to because we can't anyway. That is redemption. If you have sinned your way into helplessness and now you're boxed in, You can be redeemed by God. Our passage is about redemption. You see that in verse 27. Zion shall be redeemed by justice. And those in her who repent by righteousness. Two weeks ago our subject was conviction of sin. Last week, repentance. Now, redemption. It's where God wants to take us. Through the conviction of sin into repentance, which is where we experience redemption. Now, this passage, verses 21 through 31 of Isaiah chapter 1, this, this passage concludes now the introduction to the whole book. And in verses 21 through 26, the prophet answers the question, what? What have we become and what does God plan to do about it? He shows us the corruption of the church and the redeeming purpose of God. Look at the way it begins. How the faithful city has become a whore. And then in verse 26, the end, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. It comes full circle and resolves the tension. Then, in verses 27 through 31, the prophet answers the question, how? How does God lead us into the actual experience of redemption? It's important to realize that verses 21 through 26 stand back and envision the whole prophetic sweep of redemptive history. They take us from the disasters of Old Testament Israel through the failures of the church, all the way to perfect ultimacy in the New Jerusalem, in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. We just read a part of that now. That's what verses 21 through 26 are about. That's how big they are. But verses 27 through 31 speak directly to every successive generation of the people of God and to us today. Why? Because we face a decision. Will we choose to enter into the redemptive ways of God? So you see, Isaiah's pastoral intention in this whole passage is to sober us with who we are, to give us hope in who God is, and to urge upon us an unblinking realism about how we enter in to redemption. Now, the structure of the passage is on a handout, or an insert, pardon me, inside your bulletin. And as I looked at this, I realized there's no way I can try to just describe this to you. I need to show it to you. So that's why we have this insert here. If you'll look at that with me. Now you can see that there are six points there, and, and everybody knows a sermon is supposed to have three points, but you're going to walk out of the door this morning with double your money's worth. So you see how A-1, the church's corruption, verses 21 and 22, is matched by and resolved by A-2, the fourth point, the church's redemption. And then B-1, her rebellious leaders, explain the ultimate source of the corruption. Verse 23. And then in contrast, the church's mighty Lord and her only hope, In verse 24. Now that's the prophetic sweep of redemptive history. Then verses 27 to 31 have a decision before us, verses 27 to 28, and then the reality confronting us, verses 29 through 31. That's the structure, the inner logic, how it unfolds as literature. So you can follow that as we go through. Verse 21 this passage is very beautiful and very terrible both at the same time it is all about the gospel its premised in the gospel where does a faithful city come from but being engaged to God grace covenant The major premise of the passage is the gospel, and and it's putting before us how we interact with God according to the gospel. Verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice. The Bible says that we have been engaged to be married to Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 11. His love for us is a marital love, claiming for claiming us for himself alone. The Bible says that the church is the bride of Christ, Ephesians chapter 5. He's going to present himself to us in splendor without spot or wrinkle, holy and blameless, purified. We know that in Revelation 19 and 21. The Bible says that right now, in this life, when we flirt with other allegiances, we are committing what the Bible calls spiritual Whoredom. Hosea chapter 1 through 3. James chapter 4 verse 4. And that's why the word how stands at the beginning of verse 21. That word how signals to us that this is a lament. Verses 21 through 26 are a a heart cry of, of sorrow from heaven. Something heartbreaking has happened. Something beautiful has been dirtied in the sight of God. Something irreplaceable has been lost in the world. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, Every institution tends to produce its opposite. And that's true, isn't it? Look at the track record of the church. Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The church of Jesus Christ is the salt of the earth. There is no other. We are here to help people get a taste of God. So if the church is not full of justice, that is fully demonstrating what human life is supposed to be like, we hear a heart cry of sorrow. From heaven. Verse 21b, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Isaiah is saying, interesting, righteousness lodged in her. He's saying that in this world, righteousness is like a lonely traveler in hostile surroundings, but in the city of God, righteousness found a welcome Righteousness was embraced. Righteousness lodged in her. But he's saying things have changed. The spiritual neighborhood has gone down the drain because unfaithfulness to God always translates into a kind of corrosion of the bonds that hold people together. Even in the church, the Bible says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Does the name Whitaker Chambers ring a bell? Um, Whitaker Chambers was, he spied for the Soviet Union in this country in the 1930s. Then he became a Christian. And some of you remember when he stood up against Alger Hiss and exposed him as a spy within the State Department in the early 1950s he wrote a remarkable book called witness in which he re- he remembered a, something that happened to him one time he says the daughter of a german of a former german diplomat in moscow was trying to explain to me why her father who had been extremely pro communist had become an implacable anti communist he was immensely pro soviet she said and then You'll laugh at me, but you must not laugh at my father. And then one night in Moscow, he heard screams. That's all. Simply one night, he heard screams. In the church, the city of God, do we ever hear screams? Yes, we do. And that's one reason why there are ex-Christians. They heard screams where they should have heard songs. Verse 22. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Isn't that how sin deceives us? It promises to spice up our lives. But it only dilutes everything in life. It cheapens us. Our silver becomes dross. Our best wine mixed with water. Watered down. Insipid. Simone Weil was a brilliant uh, French Jewish intellectual who died during World War II. Actually, she was in Britain, but she put herself on the same rations that her people in France had to live on, and she actually starved. She really understood this. She said, nothing is so beautiful, nothing is so continually fresh and surprising, so full of sweet and perpetual ecstasy as the good. No deserts are so dreary, monotonous, and boring as evil. But with fantasy, it is the other way around. Fictional good is boring and flat, while fictional evil is varied, intriguing, attractive, and full of charm. Isn't that true? Look at television. How sin deceives us. We need one another's encouragement and clarity along the way to encourage each other, to see things as they are. Isaiah is going to set in contrast now in verses 23 and 24 the influence of men, 23, and the intervention of God in 24. Verse 23... Your princes are rebels and the companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. There's an ancient Jewish paraphrase of the Old Testament, a translation from the Hebrew into Aramaic, but it's a paraphrase. It's like the Living Bible. It's called Targum. And Targum, this paraphrase, helps us to understand what Isaiah is saying here. The second line, and how this can work out in real life, the second line in Targum says, all of them love to accept a bribe saying, a man to his neighbor, assist me in my case so that I will repay you in your case. Today we call it, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's how people lubricate the gears of everyday life, but if it overrides justice, it's wrong, no matter how well it works. When responsible people choose expediency, they are not judges, they are auctioneers with the most favorable treatment going to the highest bidder. And the reason why helpless people get stepped on in this world is that powerful people lose their sense of God. When the only people who matter are successful people and strong people and formidable people, life becomes savage. If no one believes that the very hairs of their head are numbered by a Father in heaven who cares about them, they have no logical reason to care about anybody else. And that's why the most precious thing about you, the most essential core of your being, is your sense of God. Verse 24. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Do you see how he identifies himself? He heaps terms upon terms to reawaken a sense of God. Ah, <clears throat> I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. This is, this is the wonderful thing about God the wonderful thing about God is that no matter what happens no matter what anybody else does or says God will never just go away he will never ungod himself he will never stop being God he will always be true to himself and Isaiah's whole point here in flooding our vision with the glory of God as he does is that God's eternally unchanging commitment to himself is our hope. There is a Lord in heaven, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, who cares about his own offended justice and his commitment to his own cause is our hope. He will get relief from his enemies and avenge himself on his foes And even when the church is compromised, God has not changed, and nobody is getting away with anything. Now, after all that, after the accusations of verse 23 and God's resolve in verse 24, what would we expect to come next? Wouldn't we expect total annihilation? We would. But redemption is surprising. Verses 25 and 26. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as, as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city, God is able to purify His church. In fact, He promises to, and He even knows how. He has industrial strength cleansing agents at His disposal, as with lie, He says. He's able to remove the deep stains of long-standing, well-established sins. God is able to recreate lost purity. He's able to take us into a purifying fire taking us all the way through to restoration as a faithful city, a city of righteousness. The church, at her best, will be seen again. And we can be a part of it. Now, the Hebrew text, before we go to verse 27 and see how we enter into this, the Hebrew text does something in verses 25 and 26 that I want to show you. Do you see the words in verse 25, I will turn? First words there. And then in verse 26, do you see the words, I will restore? Those two English verbs translate the same Hebrew verb, ashiva. We have two different English verbs in our text. Only because English can't fully cooperate with the Hebrew. (laughs) My point is this. One God, acting in one way, is able to accomplish two different things at once. When God turns his hand against his own children, it is not a disaster. It is an act of restoration. The discipline of God is perfectly suited to achieve exactly what he intends in purification and in restoration, both at the same time. Jesus said, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. What is he doing in your life right now? that you don't understand. Whatever it is, trust Him. And learn to expect the goodness of God to show up in unlikely experiences. When He turns His hand against you, He is at the same time restoring you. Trust Him. And let him do his deep work in you. Now, verses 27 to 31 conclude the passage. But not with a sort of cutesy Hollywoodish ending, as you can see. Why are these verses here? Because Isaiah doesn't want us to misunderstand. In these verses, Isaiah is now going to qualify what he said in verses 21 through 26. God will certainly restore his church. Revival and reformation are coming. The prophets repeatedly make that affirmation. The church's glory is not passing. The church's corruption is passing away. And the church will be beautifully pure forever. But, 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 For us right now, in our historical situation, in our moment in time, before that perfect ultimacy, how do we enter in to the experience of redemption? How is the church today in our generation redeemed out of mediocrity, out of failure, into power? Isaiah wants us to know. And he wants us to feel the full weight of the decision we face. In verses 21 through 26, he fortifies us with confidence in God's gracious intentions for his church. So that now, in verses 27 through 31, in our own situation, we can choose confidently to follow God into the refining fire. And stay there long enough for his purpose to be fulfilled in us, in our church, in our lives, in our homes. So here's the decision in verses 27 and 28. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. This is the key right here. God does not redeem us by casually just sweeping aside his own standards. That would be no redemption. God pays the price demanded by his own justice and righteousness. The Bible says that at the cross of Jesus Christ, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are redeemed at a cost to God we will never understand. He put our real moral guilt onto Christ crucified who lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. In Christ, God satisfied the demands of his own justice and righteousness, his own governance of this moral universe. And our only part, Isaiah says here, is to repent. Those in her who repent How could it be otherwise? We add nothing to the value of the price Jesus paid. But that kind of love claims all that we are. We are no longer our own. We have been bought at a price. The flip side of God paying a price for us is that we are now His. No claims. Our lives are open before Him. So what else can we do but repent? We need to repent of our sins every day. We need to repent of our fifth-rate righteousness every day. We need to receive afresh, with the empty hands of faith, the righteousness of someone else every day. The perfect righteousness of Jesus. God's objective accomplishment at the cross becomes a redeeming power inside us as we repent. That is how we are redeemed in our lives right here, right now, in our problems. That's what God says. So there's no way around the cross of Christ. There's no way we can earn the redemptive favor of God. And it's equally true that there's no way around repentance. There is an alternative to repentance in verse 28. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. That is the decision lying before every one of us. Will we repent and be redeemed or rebel and be consumed? God wants to redeem us. Out of our real problems and troubles. He's already paid the full price at the cross. The question is will we turn to Him in repentance, even if He leads us into the refining fire? If we decide against repentance, God says we will be consumed. If we decide for repentance, God says, we will be redeemed. Now, in the grand scheme of things, the church of God will certainly be purified. But Isaiah is saying, we have to decide whether or not we want to be a part of it. Now, finally, and he is relentless. He will not let us go. Isaiah corners us in verses 29 through 31. And please, see verses 20. He's not getting up in our faces just to slap us around. Don't read that this way. This is gospel. The whole Bible is gospel. In verses 29 through 31, Isaiah is pleading with us to embrace repentance by putting up before us in plain view what becomes of people who say no to God. For you shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, And you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. You shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong, the strong man, strong person shall become a tender and his work, his accomplishments and so on a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Now, why are these verses so confrontational? You can ask that question of so many passages in the Bible, especially in the prophets. Why are these verses so confrontational? God is pressing his point because, because we trivialize ourselves. God takes us more seriously than we take ourselves. We think it doesn't matter. My decisions, my attitudes, my thoughts and feelings, does it really make that much difference? And God is saying, you are more significant than you realize Every moment of your life matters before me. Your choices have lasting repercussions beyond what you can see. Trust me that this is so. And God is saying, that's why I'm confronting you. I love you too much through the cross of Christ not to tell you the truth and pursue you. Until you yield to me. And the truth is this. If we set the course of our lives by the earthly things we foolishly desire and choose, you see those words desire and choose in verse 29, are are just, are mere likes and dislikes. We will end up with nothing. And God is saying, God is saying, Do not let the story of your life be, oh, what could have been. The key to the metaphors in verses 29 and 30, he talks about the uh, oaks and so forth, the gardens. The key to understanding those is verse 31, the strong person and his work. The oaks and the gardens are figures of speech For human strength and potential and organization and accomplishment. And the point is that human strength and brilliance will be their own undoing. But personal, timely repentance is what opens life up. In the ways of God, the weakness of repentance is how we experience the power of redemption. And Isaiah does not close his chapter until we see it. That's why it's there. Conviction of sin, repentance, and redemption. That is God's way for us, for every Christian on the face of the earth, God's way into newness. It's a good way. (laughs) There is... There is nothing to be feared in this way because beyond redemption there is a Redeemer. Everett Harrison taught New Testament at Fuller Seminary. He was a member of our church and he wrote this, No word in the Christian vocabulary deserves to be held more precious than Redeemer. For even more than Saviour It reminds the child of God that his salvation has been purchased at a great and personal cost. For the Lord has given himself for our sins in order to deliver us from them. You may be facing a major personal struggle in your life right now and wondering which way you're going to go. You may be under heavy temptation. You may have unresolved tension between yourself and God right now. You may be out of the will of God. Maybe you have lost your purity. What will help you is this, to remember that there is a Redeemer for someone like you. He has paid the price. You don't need to add to it. He has sacrificed on your behalf and you are no longer your own. You're his problem now. Turn to him. Trust him. Open your heart to him with honest dealings about your real needs. And he will not despise you. He will redeem you.